Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. If you like this show, you can support us by going to canadalandshow.com slash join or clicking the link in the show notes on your podcast app. It's super quick to sign up and give us five bucks a month and you'll get an ad-free version of this show. So go to canadalandshow.com slash join. Thank you. Back in 2003, a documentary called The Corporation came out that really hit home for me, an impressionable and politically active 16-year-old kid. It was a close-to-unifying theory for why the world was so fucked up. An argument told in archival footage exposing the hypocrisies of big business, juxtaposed with scenes of deprivation and violence, and cheeky old-timey corporate videos. Its thesis is that since a corporation is legally considered a person, a corporate entity, then its behavior should be judged like any other person's. And if that's the case, then, well, these people are psychopaths. If we look at a corporation as a legal person, then it may not be that difficult to actually draw the transition between psychopathy in the individual to psychopathy in, in a corporation. And in fact, in many respects, a corporation of that sort is the prototypical psychopath. They tick all the boxes. Zero empathy, hurting others with a shrug, can't tell wrong from right, all because publicly traded companies have one goal, profit to shareholders. Now, 17 years later, we have a kinder, cooler, more socially responsible corporation. It does epic dunks on Twitter and tells us Black Lives Matter on Instagram 
And it makes SpawnCon on YouTube about how it's solving the world's problems through ingenious and, as it just so happens, profitable technical solutions. We now also have an updated documentary called The New Corporation, an unfortunately necessary sequel. This doc again profiles corporate behavior, unmasking yet another stage of pathological greed. After slowly lobbying to defund the public institutions that raised the baby boomer generation to incredible wealth, corporations now want to take them over. Public education, public health, public infrastructure— and turn a profit while pretending to have saved us from the inefficiencies of big government. And just like that, 17 years later, I'm pissed all over again. Both the corporation and its sequel spring from books written by UBC law professor Joel Backen. Jennifer Abbott co-directed and edited the original, and Joel joined her to co-direct The New Corporation. I'm Kasia Mihailovich, and today, Joel and Jennifer join me to talk about what gives them hope, even if the world is still caught in the grip of psychopaths. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Michael Wigington, Eric Keast, Damian Chen, Taylor Price, Brent Andringa, Daniel Freeman, Kat Villeneuve, and Kyle. Hi, my name is Kyle. I'm an educator in Alberta, and I support Canada Land because they report on things that aren't usually in the mainstream media, much like what's happening in Caledonia right now, and they're ahead of the curve on things like the wheat controversy scandal. I also really appreciate that when Jesse is called out for not knowing what he's talking about, he doesn't edit those things out. Anyway, keep up the great work, and thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. 
think what we tried to do in the first film and in the book was to take an institution, the corporation, and try to understand it as more than just an economic institution, but as a political force in the world. We try to understand it not just in terms of this or that corporation or this or that industry, but in terms of the actual structure and, in fact, legal imperatives of the institution itself. So we try to reveal what is really going on in this institution in a way that I think challenged a lot of people's conceptions about, you know, how this or that corporation might be better or might be worse or might be uh, good or might be bad. And what we said is, you know, regardless of, of what they're actually doing, all of them are playing by the same rules. And these are what those rules are. And they're quite concerning because the rules are that a corporation always has to serve its own self-interest. And because corporations are defined by the law as persons, artificial persons, we kind of put those two ideas together and said, well, if a human person always served its own self-interest, we would diagnose it as a psychopath. And so that became the conceit of the first film and book. I don't want to get too nostalgic or anything, but I remember seeing the corporation in theaters as a teenager, and it had a huge impact on me. Um, can you describe what the response to that documentary was like? I mean, I can imagine a lot of people felt like me seeing it the first time. I think one of the things I'm most proud about with the first film is that it was credited as one of the films to inspire the Occupy movement. And, you know, when you're a filmmaker and an activist who, you know, sees so much injustice in the world and you actually see a re repercussion of your work in the real world, it, you know, it's really uh, quite a moment. Right. I really do think the documentaries had uh, a potent legacy. And, and so when I see the title of the new documentary, I feel like it's almost I sense a disappointment in the full title, which is the new corporation, the unfortunately necessary sequel. So why unfortunately necessary? I think, you know, when when we made the first film, there, there was this sense that we were out there sort of slaying the dragon of corporate capitalism. And almost as soon as the uh, first film landed, uh, the dragon of corporate capitalism started growing even larger, started breathing even more fire and started becoming more dangerous and destructive. So I think just in that, it's unfortunate that it's necessary because we would have hoped the first one would have done the job. Um, but not only did the first one not do the job, but 17 years later, the problems that we identified in the first one are all much worse. Climate has gone from being a crisis to being an existential threat to the world being able to sustain life. Democracy is in crisis. Um, inequality, racial inequality, economic inequality, the intersections among all these different inequalities are just much worse than they ever were. Donald Trump is in the White House. Uh, 
our societies are being run by big tech companies that didn't even exist in any kind of uh, you know large form at the time we made the first film. So all of this has happened uh, since the first film. And so obviously the first film didn't do the job that it was tasked to do. I think at the same time, what's happened, again, beginning almost with the, with the landing of the first film, was that corporations themselves have said, we're going to do better. You know, they, they said, we heard your, I can't tell you how many business people said to me after the first film and book, thank you, Joel, you know, thank you guys for making this film, for writing this book. Um, we needed to hear that. You've diagnosed a problem with us and we're now going to fix it. You know, we're not going to be psychopaths anymore. We're going to change that. We're going to become truly socially responsible. We're going to become truly sustainable. And that is the movement that we call the new corporation movement. Um, and that we we reveal and that we then uh, show the problems with. When you talk to people like Lord John Brown of British Petroleum or uh, Paul Pullman, formerly of Unilever, these corporate leaders in the new corporation movement are very self-conscious in saying, we heard all those protesters in the streets during the anti-globalization movement. We saw the film, The Corporation. We read the book. You know, we realize we're in trouble. People don't like us anymore. I think calling corporations psychopaths absolutely had an impact. And I can say that for myself. When when I had to consume that particular thought, that was um, that was interesting to use a very soft word. Uh, It was outrageous. Has it influenced it? Yes. Are we on the road to recovery? I hope, I hope we are. And so we have this strange thing after the first film where the first film almost gets absorbed into the corporate narrative. We were bad, but now we're good. And so they move forward, like we're the good guys, we're gonna solve the world's problems. In the meantime, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And and so that's the situation we're in today. Corporations saying we're the good guys, the world just totally off the rails in, in every way possible, much worse than it was when we made the first film. That's pretty unfortunate. And it's <laughs> and it's and it's pretty necessary to address it. Yeah, no, I tend to agree, Joel. Jennifer, do you have anything to add to that sweeping uh, indictment? Well, I do in the sense that when we made the first film, certainly things were bleak. There was no question about that. But now, you know, um, I think we're we're at a point in time which is also we're emotionally situated within these crises differently. Uh, you know, I really felt when we were making the first film that the world was salvageable, right? Yeah, and and so the first film actually has less gravitas. It's it's more cheeky. It has more archival footage that's quite playful. The second film reflects this moment in time and the gravitas of this moment in time. I mean, no matter like just to take the climate crisis, you know, we can't stop climate change at this point in time. We can hopefully mitigate the most catastrophic predictions, but we can't stop it. So there's sort of a sense that. Not everything is salvageable anymore. And this is kind of our last chance. So 
we really try to go emotionally to that place in the unfortunately necessary sequel. And, and that's another reason why why it is. Right. I want to bring up something that reflects things, uh, things that you both were just talking about. The new corporation movement is a little bit, I, I thought, a little bit uh, presaged in the first documentary. There was like a case study of the company Interface. And I'm wondering if one of you could could remind us what the story of Interface was in that documentary. Yeah, it was a company that makes carpet tiles and that was run by a quite visionary uh, chair and CEO named Ray Anderson, who has since passed. And it's a fairly small company by the standards of what large companies are. Um, a fairly sort of locally producing company. And Ray Anderson was a uh, a markedly intelligent and thoughtful and and concerned individual. So so his view was, you know, we're going to make this company truly sustainable. It wasn't at the time a publicly traded company. And so it was very much in the vein of Ben and Jerry's at Patagonia, Nature's Gate, Tom's of Maine, these right. kind of smaller, but not tiny, but smaller companies with visionary leaders committed to environmental and social good and sustainability, um, making the case that, you know, corporations can, can in fact be good actors in the world. Now, all of them were not publicly traded. So in a way, they didn't run by the same rules that your Exxon, uh, Mobil, and all these other big Unilevers, et cetera, run by. So that's an important distinction. What happened around 2005 was that the big companies, the big transnational publicly traded, you know, mega billion dollar companies jumped on board and started to say, we are like Ray Anderson. We are like Toms of Maine. We're going to do the same thing that those kind of eccentric, hippie-style companies through the 80s and 90s were doing. We're going to be like that. We made a, a huge tectonic shift to take this idea of social responsibility and move it from the edges of the company to the core of the company. And, and so now this is what we are about. And so if you go to the webpage of any of these companies, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Unilever, any of them, you feel like you're at an NGO webpage. You know, the first thing they want to talk about is not their profits and not their products. It's about how they're saving the world. So this was a huge, huge shift. And, and that shift is really the premise of of this project of, of both right. the book, of both the book and film. It's why we go to Davos. It's because under the leadership of Klaus Schwab, who we interview, Davos has become the kind of epicenter, the mecca of this idea of the new corporation, not least because Klaus Schwab originally came up with this idea back in the 1970s. What is the purpose of a company? Is it just to make money? Companies recognize that they have a special responsibility how we combine or how we plan money-making and social responsibility. He called it stakeholder capitalism, but his basic intellectual work is the foundation 
of creative capitalism, natural capitalism, green capitalism, social capitalism, conscious capitalism, call it what you will, it all emanates from his initial ideas. And and so it was really great that we were able to talk to him and, and go to Davos. Yeah. And I mean, uh, then is now, it's bullshit, as the <laughs> documentary clearly clearly shows it's not true i, I mean not, okay all right it's not going to solve the it's not going to solve any of our problems you know you take well, with well, one hand and you give 10 percent back with the other and worse than not solving our problems i think the real conceit of the book and film is that it's going to make them worse why because and that what, they were what, the ones who caused well, it they, in the first they place caused it in the first place but but even more problematic by saying that they're now going to provide the solutions they are leveraging that idea to push government out of the way and basically take control of society to deregulate themselves to privatize more it's like we're the good guys now so let us run the world right i I mean but and just to hark back to ray anderson one of the final slides at the end of the original uh original documentary says that it is the goal of that company of of interface to be sustainable by 2020 and you know here we are in 2020 Ray Anderson has has died. Um, do you know if that company is sustainable? And like, I guess at the end of the day, does it make a difference considering the world we're in right now? Uh, the answer is no. I mean, they're not sustainable. Uh, they still have a very good uh, public facing image of being committed to climate. They still try to do uh, what they can, um, like all corporations, but they're really not that much different than others. Um, But I think the real point is that you have to ask, what does sustainability mean? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that has happened with concepts like sustainability, human rights, climate, all of those things, is those are very broad concepts. They can be interpreted in many different ways. And the way businesses and corporations interpret them is in ways that are narrow enough to allow them to still make profit while doing whatever it is they're calling sustainable. So one of the one of the things we want people to take from this film is that these concepts are thrown around, but really think about how they're being narrowed in order to be aligned with the fundamental reasons why corporations exist, which is to make money. One thing I got from this documentary is that the intentions of corporations, noble or cynical, whatever, it doesn't really matter Ray Anderson said he would be in jail, but he never went to jail. He died a rich man, supposedly. So, yes, you know, the idea that this the same people can profit and somehow change the world has been sold to us, I agree, very strongly since the rise of techno-utopianism in this century. I do think that the first um, documentary was a lot more optimistic about maybe how that could help. And the second documentary is just not. I, I wouldn't say so because I think we feel that in the in the sequel, the primary antagonism that exists and tension in the film, it is really between corporations and democracy. And we look at the ways neoliberalism or corporate ideologies, you know, for the last 40 years has really conned us into believing that you know we're consumers primarily, we're individualistic. We are, um, you know, that as humans, we're we're inherently selfish, and right. look out for our own interests. Really, that's a social construct, and if it's a social construct, we can reconstruct it, 
And so, you know, I won't go into too much depth in terms of the ideas that we we focus on in the film related to these themes, but I will say that in that arena, I feel it's quite hopeful because I believe that we show ways people are taking back power, that they're, you know, re-energizing themselves as citizens and not consumers. And so, you know, I wouldn't say that the second film is less optimistic in that arena. Uh, it likely is less optimistic overall, just because this moment in time overall is a very, very high stakes, difficult moment in time. So, yeah. but at the same time, you know, I, I, we could segue into to the inclusion at the end of the uprising that happened after George Floyd's brutal murder by at the hands of police. You know, we, Joel and I were both insistent that we had to include that uprising. Justice now! Imagine how angry, desperate you would have to be to come out and protest in the historical pandemic that has had a disproportionately horrendous impact in black communities. Take your knee off our neck! Take your knee off our neck! The democracy is trying to breathe because of the weight of poverty on our neck and the denial of health care on our neck. Because what's happening is, metaphorically, the whole culture is saying, we can't breathe. We were very insistent on including it because it is such, it's such a monumental, uh, in, you know, example of resistance at the systemic level, right? Like it's right. challenging systemic racism. And it's challenging the system and it's challenging corporate capitalism. So, you know, because of the uprising and the fact that it happened, you know, I think it enabled us to have a, a really authentically hopeful end because it's a it's an extraordinary movement and an extraordinary moment in time. We were talking about how in the intervening years between the two corporation documentaries that the that government had been more and more chipped away to be replaced by the quote unquote innovations of the private sector of technological companies. Yeah. I mean, if I could just jump in very quickly on this, cause it's something I've been doing in my scholarship and it's something that's more present in the book. And the basic idea is that government hasn't diminished at all uh, over the last 40 years. It's just shifted whose interests it helps. Uh, and I've written academic pieces about this, but the basic idea is that this notion of laissez-faire, this notion of the minimal state is just absolutely intellectually uh, suspect um, because right. the state hasn't gone anywhere. What has happened is state the, the pie of state power has been redivided, and it's been divided in a way that it now helps the interests of capital, it helps the interests of corporations, it helps enforce racial divides, it helps enforce poverty and, and, and inequality, it protects property rights, it protects corporations, it protects contract rights, but it doesn't protect people's rights anymore. And, and, and so the, to the extent the state has been diminished, it's only been diminished in that function of redistributing wealth, protecting people, 
regulating corporations and regulating the economy. By corollary, its power has been expanded, its coercive power has been expanded in helping those interests of property, of capital, of those who have power. You know, you go from uh, Davos to Occupy to Fight for 15 in Seattle, Black Lives Matter, the Adani Mine in Australia, any of these events or movements could be its own documentary, right? What is the point in linking these movements that are around the world? What is the the utility of that for someone who is in only one place? Well, because they are linked. I mean, we we always are only in one place, but we're also in every place. We're part of the world uh, that is being you know subject to things like climate change, things like the rise of right wing populism. Um, but we're also living in a particular place where maybe we don't suffer the kinds of effects that others do. I mean, certainly here we don't suffer the effects of climate change in the way that equatorial uh, communities are suffering them. Um, you know, as as white, you know, upper middle class people, we're not suffering poverty and inequality in the way others are. But I think, uh, and you know, it's become almost cliche to say that the COVID crisis has shown how interconnected everything is, um, how interconnected we all are, and and how if we don't come up with collective solutions to these problems. Uh, then we are all going to be in trouble. And I think one of the one of the points of the film is exactly that everything is connected, that we aren't just individuals in our own you know bubbles and places, um, but but that we're all interdependent on each other. And I think the idea was, I mean, my kind of a, a original thinking about the narrative structure was very much influenced by by zombie films. Um, because it feels to me we're at that kind of dystopian place in our world now where a zombie film about the real world um, makes sense. So we're in the town. Everything seems great. You know, corporations are socially responsible. They're nice. We're at Davos. They're telling us how great everything is and they're going to solve everything. But then all of a sudden we realize that those nice neighbors of ours are actually flesh-eating zombies and they start destroying everything and they have this set of strategies that they're using to take over and killing and maiming and they elect a president named donald trump you know i mean this is all kind of going on in the zombie film and then finally the the good you know the good citizens of the town who are left who haven't been eaten by the zombies are like we have to we have to get together we have to work on this and and push back these zombie invaders and so you know they start to organize and they start to protest and they start to try to save the town uh from from these zombie invaders and you know, all of them are being infect, affected in different ways. Some of them have lost family members. Some of them haven't, whatever. But they're all in it together. And and they're all working. And hopefully, they prevail. And that, obviously, is the hope at the end of the film. Uh, the, the pivot in the film to center around the victory against the Adani mine in Australia by local people there, 
the struggle that continues with the Reverend John Barber and Black Lives Movement, this class struggle with racism at the center, as as it's put in the documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, and this reminder that, um, you know, we've been here before, that movements mm-hmm. of ordinary people have broken the chains. Another direct quote from the film. That's mixed with me with this, like, oh, this desperation i feel in pandemic times at the precipice of climate catastrophe what tools will these ordinary people use to break the chains and what you hope people can take away from this documentary uh, to help them do that i think one of the things that really has changed that we do profile in the film is you know there was an understanding after Occupy, and, and Micah White says as much, the co-founder of Occupy Wall Street, you know, protesters realized after Occupy that it wasn't enough to protest in the streets. We had to pair protests with gaining sovereignty. So you know, I, we do document a number of progressives who, who run for, for office and who are elected, and all of them surprisingly elected. So, right. you know, I think that's a that's a big shift. I think the next wave of revolutions really is going to be this kind of strange thing where we wake up and we're like, oh my gosh, there's this social movement. They're in the streets, but they're running election campaigns. They have candidates and they're winning. And the fact that so many people are actually willing to 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 potentially imagine a different way of being in the world and that corporate capitalism is not just the way it is, is a really important shift. And I think very hopeful. What do you think, Joel? I agree. (laughs) I mean, I think think one of the, what I love about this film that, that we didn't quite achieve in the first film because we're in different times the first film was like okay go do something get up and get off the couch and do something i think in this film we're much more we have a a narrative or a story about um the kinds of things that need to be done and how historically over the last 20 years even since the first film we've evolved in our thinking we've gone from okay we have to march through the streets uh, like in the anti-globalization movements, to occupy. Well, no, we don't march through the streets. Now we're going to sit in the squares and streets. We're not going to move. We're going to stop moving. We're going to be sedentary, and we're going to take over. But not only are we going to take over, but we're going to enact what participatory democracy would look like. We're going to have free medical clinics and free free food available and childcare and lectures and all of this stuff. So, so wow, that that's a lot different than a protest march. The protest march is still important, of course, but now we're adding this other dimension. And then after Occupy, activists are saying, we need to gain governmental power. And so there's been this trajectory from the streets to political office, uh, march, occupy the streets, but now occupy political office. And there's a very sort of optimistic note in that, which is that these institutions of democracy that we may have thought were totally useless and had been totally taken over by corporations are now kind of having this new life breathed into them, that we haven't given up on the institutions. We've realized that they've been hijacked and and manipulated and, and misguided and misled and all of that. 
but the institutions themselves can be reclaimed. And, and that's what I think is new since the last film. That just wasn't happening then. That there's this new sense, particularly among young people, that they can actually take democracy and make it work the way it's supposed to work. And that's the story that we, we tell in our film. That's your Candleland. If you like the show, you can get it ad-free for five bucks a month by going to candlelandshow.com slash join or just clicking on the show notes. I'm Kasia Mihailovich. Feel free to email my boss about this episode. He's at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at Canadaland. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our producer this week is Gabe Knox. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Please consider supporting Canada Land. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.